Strange Stories UK here, or Strange Stories. Uh, this is Series 5, Episode 3, and it is Murder at Taran Kenstone, Dorset, Part 2. So I'm assuming that anyone listening has listened to Part 1, otherwise this won't make a great deal of sense. So straight into the story. When Inspector Hambrook investigated Fred Demon's background, they found that Edward Wellham had been paying him one pound and threepence weekly, and that Diem had been promised a pay rise after a year. But that had not happened. He had not discussed it with Edward Wellham, but Fred had discussed it with his family, and agreed to mention it in the spring, and if no pay rise was offered, to consider finding another position. There were good reasons why Wellham was not giving a pay increase to Diem, as his performance at work could not be seen as satisfactory. But it's possible that Fred Demon was incapable of realising this. When Demon's father was questioned about the murder, the police were unable to get much information and said the father had explained that he did not ask his son questions. I do not ask and I'm told no lies, was his response. Inspector Hambrook stated that he did not think that Demon told his father about his business, but Detective Hambrook thought that he had said something to his mother, whose demeanour was described as very apprehensive, and said that he thought she knew more than she said. Demon was close to his mother, who could not deny him anything. When they questioned Demon's girlfriend, Kathleen Fripp, who he had been seeing for about a year, she said that when she asked him if he knew about who had done it, the murder, I suppose, he said, I don't know at all, and they can't find out. Kathleen said they should have, he should have called in the usual way at 7pm on the day after the murder, the 2nd of October. That was the day that he was due to appear in court. But he didn't turn up, and said that he had told her that he had gone to sleep and his mother didn't wake him, and they had woken up at 7pm, by which time it was too late. Fred Demon had said that he had gone to the kennels at 10am to see a policeman to go into the woods to see about some poachers. Kathleen said that she saw him the following day at 7pm when they went to the pictures in Wimborne, but said he didn't say anything about poachers or the murder, and she didn't ask him but he seemed so jokey that she thought he had nothing to do with the shooting. Demon had told her a story about poachers on motorbikes. Kathleen said that on the 9th of October 1931, she read in the newspaper that Fred, Demon, had been charged with stealing, so she didn't go to meet him again, and when he called, she told him that she had read what he'd been, that he'd been had up for stealing, and that she didn't want to go out with him anymore. Kathleen said that Fred denied it, so she got the newspaper cutting, and he still denied it, saying that they got the name right, but they ha he hadn't done it. She said that he told her then that he would take the clipping and go to the police station about it, and he went off, but he didn't call again until the 21st of October. By then, Kathleen had been to the police station and told him, I've been down to see the super at Wimborne, and the super says that that's right, it was you and said that, she said that Fred replied, well I've been down there to myself and seen the super, and he said it was a mistake. It was a man at Spring Hill near Witchhampton. 
Kathleen said that Fred then asked if she wanted to go for a ride, and she said she would only go for a uh, one to the police station to prove that it was him, and Fred said he would take her there on his bike, but she refused, and Fred would not walk there. So she said, well, we'd better finish. And they went indoors, and that was the end of their relationship. The local police said that Kathleen had come from a respectable family, and when it became clear that Demon had been stealing, she would have nothing more to do with him. The police then said that bearing in mind that Fred Demon was a thief, and knowing there had been several losses at the kennels, it occurred to them to ask Fred Demon's ex-girlfriend whether he had given her any presents, and she produced a Kodak camera that he had given her in March or April 1931. That was identified as being the one used at the kennels for taking photographs of the dogs that were for sale. It was found missing just after the kennels had moved to the other end of Tarrant Canestone in March 1931. When Fred was asked about the camera, he said, I bought it from a man I knew on the road one night on my way home. I gave two and six for it. It was a long time ago. I don't know who the man was and I never saw him since or before. When the police then went to his house, they found a pair of gloves, valued at 16 shillings and sixpence, that had also gone missing from the kennels at the time of the move. They also found a dog chain, an alarm gun and a valve lifter, all from the kennels. When questioned Fred about the gloves, he said he had taken them because they, he thought they were of no use, but they were said to have been almost new. Demon appeared at the Petty Sessions on the 30th of October 1931, charged with stealing the camera and gloves, but the charges were dismissed. The police report stated that it was difficult to understand the reasoning for the justice in dismissing the charges in two such absolutely clear cases. It was never explained why the charges were dismissed. Having made other inquiries, Hambrook again interviewed Demon at some length on the 17th of October. 1931, and he took a further statement from him going over details in which he was caught out in an untruth by Hambrook. On the day of the shooting, Demon said that he remembered certain events by emphasising the time by saying that he heard the clock strike eight just before Wellham went home to have his breakfast at his lodgings. However, the Tarrant Canestone clock that Demon claimed to have heard was stopped at that time. It wasn't working that morning. Hambrook said had witnesses that had not seen Demon in the Cowfield when he claimed to, that he was there. But Hambrook did not press the point, then wanting to firm up witnesses' statements before challenging Demon on these other abnormalities. Hambrook had investigated and tracked down the following witnesses that were near the murder scene when Wellen was shot. Ava Dennett was the wife of a dairyman who lived in a cottage that looked over the kale field. She was at the cottage front that morning that overlooked the dog runs. She was only about 30 or 40 yards from the kale fields. She said she'd been cleaning the outside back of the house. She said she heard a shot at about 9.50, about 10 minutes before the church clock had struck. It had been repaired by that time. She said she did not see Demon walking out in the kale field or calling for the dog. She said that she would have thought she would have seen Demon if he was there. She said that for a few minutes after 10am, a servant 
uh, sorry, I beg your pardon. She said that a few minutes after 10am, a servant employed at the farm said to her, Have you heard what's happened? She said no, and the servant said, Ted has met with an accident. Annie Clothier, the wife of another dairyman, had sent her daughter Gladys to the cowfield to give her brother, Leslie Clothier, who was a shepherd, his breakfast. Leslie was thought to be a friend of Fred Demon. Annie said that about 9.30am she had given the daughter the breakfast and said that the clock had been set from Big Ben on the wireless, although it was thought little after 9.30 that Gladys had left. Gladys, who was described as a very intelligent girl, had ridden her mother's bicycle to the gate, leading to the kale field, by the gateway at the bottom, opposite the dog runs. She then wheeled her cycle along a footpath through the kale to the wire netting that divided the kale field from the remainder of the field. She left the bicycle by a hayrick, crossed a fence and walked to the shepherd's hut about 400 yards away. Her brother was not there, so she walked out of the field to the downs, where she found him and handed him his breakfast. It was noted that the time for her to cycle from her home to the cow field was about four minutes. She said that on the way she had seen another brother, Charles, or Charlie, who was employed as an assistant carter on the farm, and he was hitching his horse to a water cart. Gladys said that she didn't see anyone in the cow field, or see a dog there, on either the forward or return journeys. This would only have been a couple of minutes after 9.30 when Demon said he was in the cowfield, field, so it's difficult to explain why she did not see Demon in the field if he had been there. Charles Clothier also worked at Coleman's Farm, the farmhouse about 300 yards from the kennels. He said that he had travelled about 600 yards on horseback in what he described as a quarter of a circle, bearing to where the water cart was in a 42-acre field at a point 400 year, yards from the entrance to the cow field, opposite the dog runs. He said the journey took about 10 minutes, and for about 250 yards of the journey, he had a good view across the cow field, and he had not seen anyone in it. He said he saw his sister when he harnessed the horse to the water cart, but no one else. So this would have been from about 9.32 to 9.42, the 10 minutes that Demon claimed he was in the field. So, if Demon was in the field when he claimed to be, why had Charles not seen him? Albert Russell, a blacksmith aged 48. He lived in Rose Cottage, about a kilometre from the kennels. He said he left his house in his 1923 Woolsey two-seater car to go to Lop Hill Farm. He said that on his way, just before reaching the cow field, opposite the dog runs, he saw a dog, probably a spaniel, cross the road from the cow field, to the gate leading to the kennels. This was about 9.30. The reason he noticed the dog so particularly is because he had to almost pull up to allow it to cross the road. He said that the dog was wet and looking very dejected, looking as if it had been in the river and it had been out all night. He said it looked very tired. The police report stated that the description was considered uh, with the description of the blind dog called Peter that had been left in the kale field for at least an hour and a half. The police report noted that Albert Russell later saw the Spaniel Peter and he recognised it as a dog that he had seen. Russell said that on his return 20 minutes later he saw PC Head and some other people looking upset near the gate of the kennels. Albert Russell did not hear any shot but he explained that his car made a lot of noise especially when travelling up a hill so 
that's what he would have been doing after passing the kennels. It was noted that Albert Russell later had a breakdown on the 15th of October 1931 after imagining that he was a suspect for the murder, and it took the police some effort to convince him that he was not a suspect, he was just one of 20 ordinary witnesses. Russell had breakdowns in the past. The police commented that Albert Russell wasn't the best witness. It was thought that he was neglecting himself after his wife left him to live in Bournemouth. Anyhow, the Timings did not seem to agree with Fred Demon's statement. Surely someone would have seen him in the Kelfield when he claimed to have been there. Headley had seen nothing suspicious in the kennels at 9.25. Russell saw the dog Peter running to the kennels alone at about 9.30, when Fred claimed he'd heard the shots at 9.35 and caught the dog at 9.36 to put him on the lead and take him back to the kennels. Why did the clothier children or their mother not see Fred Demon taking the dog back to the kennels between 9.30 and 9.45? Very suspicious. The inquest had been adjourned until the 10th of October 1931. On that date, eight jurymen were sworn and the evidence taken on the 3rd of October. It was read out to them. The inquest had been adjourned until the 10th of October 1931. On that day, eight jurymen were sworn and the evidence taken on the 3rd of October was read out, out to them. Creech, the coroner, then further adjourned the inquest to enable inquiries to be completed. The inquest resumed 10.30am on the 23rd of October. The proceedings were recommenced at Blandford Town Hall. Mr Mallam again appeared on behalf of Mr Frampton and the deceased relatives. Mallam was determined to ask difficult questions about the shooting. He seemed to think that people in the village wanted it to be passed off as an unfortunate accident, just as Mr Steer's shooting had passed a couple of years previously. During the inquest, the Hathaway family were all questioned in the witness box. PC Head was questioned for 50 minutes by Mr Mallam, and PC Head had to correct his earlier sworn evidence. Head still insisted that it was suicide. Detective Hambrook, who was later to put in his report, that he was at a loss to understand why PC Head, who seemed an intelligent man, would make such a fool of himself in the witness box. PC Head and another policeman said they saw Peter the dog come back to the kennels by himself, thus contradicting Demon's statement that he had brought Peter back. Albert Russell also seeing Peter by himself. Demon's response was that he must have shut Peter away must, uh, must not have shut Peter away properly in the kennel, allowing him to escape again. And he put the dogs back in the kennel when PC Head first arrived. William Hathaway's testimony disagreed with Demon's account, as when they were at the scene of the shooting at about 10am, the dog Peter came from the direction of the stream. Demon said that he would shut Peter in. This contradicted the amended evidence from Demon that he had already shut the dogs Peter and Patch in the kennel together after he claimed that they had escaped after he had not put in the bolt properly. According to Demon's evidence, he had shut the dog Peter in the kennel on three occasions on the morning of the shooting. So the dog would have, Peter would have had to escape twice if you were to believe Demon's account. Mary Hathaway told the court there had never been a problem with the dogs escaping in the past after they were put into the kennels. So it was just that morning.
They kept escaping. The Incas was told by Demon that there were no loose dogs in the office and no rats. There were two cats that had the run of the office. It was presumed that the cats had not accidentally fired the shotgun that killed the Wellum. Demon told the inquest jury that it was not more than five minutes after hearing the shot that he got back to the office. He thought Wellum was shot as he, Demon, saw the gun and the blood. Further questioning from the jury discovered that Demon had only once before been sent out to find the dog Peter in the kale field. The dog had been at the kennels for nine months. Wellum had a connection with the dog Peter and preferred to take him and bring him back himself. He would not ask Demon to do that for him. Demon also claimed that he had a witness that saw him looking for Peter the dog and he named Leslie Clothier, the shepherd, who was his friend. The inquest was adjourned again as Leslie Clothier was sent for. The inquest resumed again on the 26th of October. Clothier saying that he was too far away to see anything that was happening in the kale field at the time of the shooting. He did speak vaguely about seeing a dog in a field at about 8am when it was known and agreed by everybody that Peter was in the field. This was what is known today as agreed facts and it was an uncontentious fact that everybody had agreed on. So De Demon's witness being um, a total waste of time. Various other witnesses were called and there was a long debate about the spread of the shot over distances by shotguns, coming to the conclusion that the shot that killed Wellham was fired at a distance of 12 and a half feet away from him. Bernard Spilsbury's evidence was then given in court. He had conducted a post-mortem on the 5th of October at Blandford Mortuary. Spilsbury reported that Wellham was a well-nourished man, 5 foot 9, and he had shotgun injuries on the left side and the back of his head upper parts of the neck and the left shoulder. There was also a single wound on the right side of the head at some distance from the other wounds. There was a large amount of blood. There were five small fractures of the skull beneath the area of the gunshot wounds. The brain had been injured by the shot. The cause of death was coma due to, due to injury of the brain and hemorrhaging around it as a result of the shotgun blast. The injuries at the back of the head and the left shoulder were caused by a single discharge that hit the shoulder and glanced upwards, and that caused the main injuries on the left side of the head. Wellham would have lost consciousness as soon as he was shot. The shot was taken at a horizontal position as Wellham had his back to the shooter. It seemed that he had been bending over a desk, the gun being fired at a distance of several feet. It's impossible that the injuries were self-inflicted. Spilsbury's impression was that Wellham saw he was about to be shot and ducked to avoid it. And Spilsbury's evidence was backed up with Dr. Wilson agreeing with him. Detective Hambrook then gave evidence showing photographs of the body at the scene. I think I put a couple of these on the, on the Facebook site. I might get the Instagram site up and running again and put them on there. The coroner then summed up at some length of the jury his address occupying an hour. It was clear that he, although he was guided them towards a verdict of willful murder, he did not wish them to name any particular person as being responsible. The jury retired for about 18 minutes and then returned their verdict that Wellham was murdered by some persons or person unknown. During the inquest, the coroner told Demon that he did not have to answer any questions that may incriminate him while he spent two hours in the witness box telling the story that has already been covered here. 
Diem, of course, missed the conclusion of the inquest, the first inquest, as he had a motorcycle accident on the uh, November the 1st. Demon crashed his motorbike and as a result was detained in Wimborne Cottage Hospital, suffering from concussion and a broken collarbone, and in consequence he was not interviewed. This was before the inquest had returned a verdict of murder by a person or persons unknown, so Demon was unable to attend the inquest and answer questions regarding the string and the, st uh, the stick that had been set up to indicate suicide. Hambrook wanted his reply on record, the court papers. However, if Demon did not attend a court to answer this, it would have probably been that he, if he did attend an answer, he would have probably said that he didn't remember or that he was scared and traumatised at the time. Fred Demon was discharged from hospital and although the police wanted to question him further, they were having difficulty locating him. It seemed that he was avoiding them. On the early afternoon of the 2nd of December 1931, Hambrook called at Demon's address but was informed by his mother that he had left about an hour before for the purposes of going to the hospital to visit a fellow patient. Inquiries were then made and observations kept at likely places in Wimborne, but they were unable to get in touch with Demon. When Hambrook and Sergeant Bell again called at Demon's address at about 10.15 on the 3rd of December 1931, they eventually found him. His mother and father were also present. Fred Demon, his father, angrily demanded to know why the police wanted to see his son. When they were told that Fred was needed to make a further statement, Demon Senior, who was almost mad with temper, shouted, He won't make a statement. Ask him what you want here. The police were standing on the doorstep in the pouring rain and felt Demon Seaman, so Demon Senior, was likely to cause some violence and he had to be spoken to very firmly before they were able to enter the house and make a statement. The new statement made by Fred did not agree with the photographs that were taken by the police at the scene of the shooting. So either the photographs were wrong, or Fred was mistaken or lying. Fred said that the gun was lying on the gate of the office when he first saw the body. The police photographs show the gun was laying under the body of Wellham. Demon then fudged his statements, saying words to the effect that he was so shocked that he didn't really notice anything clearly. There might have been some string and a stick, which indicated suicide, but he couldn't be sure. He panicked and ran off to the Hathaway's cottage after discovering the body. Demon also states that he cannot remember anything else that he saw at the kennels on the 1st of October. And he didn't know anything else, in any way connected with Wellham's death or the injuries that he received. So who was Fred Demon? Frederick George Demon was something of an odd character. He was 17 years of age when he came to work at the kennels in 1930. He was the youngest of four children, his siblings all having left home. His father was a farm labourer who had been a gamekeeper in the past and was described as sullen. Fred was said to be very close to his mother but had the characteristics of his father. The demons lived at High Wood near Badbury Rings in an isolated position. It was three miles from the nearest building. Demon lived in this out-of-the-way place all of his life. His mother seemed to pander to Fred, and in between them they apparently managed to hoodwink the father to the son's advantage. Fred Demon was said to have inherited his father's cunning and wooden demeanour. Detective Hambrook worked hard to discover any other leads on the Wellham murder, and he was questioning anyone who may be able to give him a lead. 
he discovered that in the autumn of 1930, William George Bagg, aged 21, of Chilbridge near Wimborne, who had known Demon since they went to school together, Bagg was out of work and asked, Demon if he wa- asked by Demon if he wanted a job, with the result that he saw Wellham and told him that he wanted a man to catch rabbits during the rabbit season. Bagg said that he knew nothing about catching rabbits, but Demon promised to teach him. Bagg told Wellham that he could catch rabbits and started work the same day on a wage of 30 shillings a week and two rabbits. However, after three months, Wellham said there wasn't much for him and he wasn't going to keep him on. It was said to have caused some bad feeling towards Wellham from both Bagg and Demon. Other rabbit catchers employed at the kennels during the winter of 1930 and the spring of 1931 were Harry Hoare, aged 63, and Frederick Hoare, father and son, farm labourer and roadman respectively. They lived at Tarrant Rushton. The police were satisfied that they had nothing to do with the shooting. Harry Hoare called at the kennels once or twice since leaving with the object of being again employed but he was not re-engaged because he was suspected of stealing the camera that had in fact been stolen by Demon, who gave it to his girlfriend. As stated earlier, Wellen was engaged to a Miss Lunn, and he wanted to break off the engagement. He discussed it with his employer, Mr Frampton, who told him that if he did break it off, there may be a breach of promise proceedings by the young lady. On the 13th of March 1930, Miss Lunn received the following anonymous letter in an envelope bearing the Blandford postmark. To Miss Lunn, I don't know if you are aware that Ted Wellham is flirting and falling about with all the girls in Keenstone, especially that Louis Scholarfield, the school teacher. She's always running up to the kennels to see him. And also, he's always talking to that Mary Hathaway about and she's about on his motorbike with him. He's a rotter. I thought you would like to know. From one who knows a local resident. Miss Lunn informed Wellham of the receipt of the anonymous letter and wrote as if she treated the matter as a joke. After that, Wellham only wrote one postcard to Miss Lunn and this seemed to have been the manner in which the engagement was terminated. Miss Lunn states that she had not seen or heard Wellham since the 15th of April, 1930 the date of the postcard. It seemed clear that Wellham had sent the anonymous letter himself, or it was written with his knowledge, and he used that as an excuse to end his relationship with Miss Lunn. There was a local rumour that Mrs Edith Hathaway wanted to match her daughter Mary with Wellham. This might supply a motive for her interest in the letter, and although the writing was not hers, Hambrook thought that it was curious that she made the same misspelling of the word resident in the letter. Edith Hathaway strenuously denied knowing who wrote the letter. Detective Hambrook, while he investigated the letter, asked various people in Tarrant Kingstone to write selected phrases from the letter, but he failed to find any similar handwriting or to trace the writer. Miss Lund stated that she did not bear any malice towards Wellham, although her family were investigated and cleared by the police, as it was thought a possibility that a member of Miss Lund's family may have had murderous thoughts towards Ted Wellham. Well, it's very unlikely. Detective Hambrook was being very thorough. Hambrook also investigated Anne Steer, the widow of William Harold Douglas Steer. She was residing at Six Cornhill, Dorchester, where she kept a small boarding house. Various insinuations regarding her moral character had been made. 
The police cleared her of any murder attempt. There were some letters sent to her that the police thought that may have been letting her know that her husband's death had been avenged. But she had disposed of the letters, and it seemed another long shot by the police. From what I can make out, William Steer was not an important factor in her life, and the police soon came to the same conclusion. Police also investigated Edwin Cripps, the retired grocer of Luxor Cottage, Tarrant Kenstone, who has a protest against shooting near his house through an axe through one of the kennel windows. From Fred Cripps' statement, it will be seen that he knew both Steer and Wellham. On one occasion, about the end of June 1930, his wife, who was heavily pregnant, had been in the orchard near the house, and she was very upset having seen Wellham in Ashley Wood, which was at the rear of Cripps' house and garden, and uh, Wellham had his gun pointed in her direction. Nothing was said to anyone, but a few days later Cripps was in the garden, having heard a shot, and he looked in that direction and saw Wellham with his gun pointed as if to shoot a rabbit. Cripps went to him and said he, he had a very good reason for not wanting any shooting near the house for the time being. Wellham did not say anything, although he seemed about to do so, but Cripps did not hear stopped to hear as he was so very annoyed. On another occasion, just before the baby was born, Cripps saw Mr Frampton in Ashley Wood after he had fired a shot. Cripps again went to his hedge and called over to Frampton, said he should not shoot near his house as it was very disturbing for Mrs Cripps. Despite other protests by Cripps, the shooting continued, so Cripps threw an axe through the windows of the kennel saying, summon me and I'll pay for the damage. Then he walked away, and Wellham followed him. Cripps said, I don't want to harm you, but I do want the shooting stopped. Wellham said, you can't do that, meaning breaking the window, and put up his fists. But Cripps replied, I don't want to fight, summon me and I'll pay. As a result, Cripps was summoned and had to attend Blandford Police Court, where he was fined 21 shillings, including costs and told not to take the law into his own hands. Outside the court he shook hands with Frampton and Wellham, saying he hoped they would not be bad friends. Frampton told him that if anything of the kind occurred again, Cripps should come and see him. The police said there was no longer any ill feeling. Detective Hambrook thought Demon was blaming Cripps as a possible assailant, without the slightest justification trying to put the blame elsewhere. There had also been annoyance caused by the barking of dogs and a petition for the removal of the kennels. It was forwarded to the Blandford Rural District Council, but the body was unable to do anything about it. The kennels at that time were situated on Preston Farm, the other side of Tarrant Canestone. William Poor, a dairyman employed by Mr Hooper at Preston Farm, complained to his employer that he could not sleep on account of the noise and threatened to leave if the kennels were not shifted. As a result, Mr Hooper gave Frampton notice and the kennels were moved to their present site on land rented from Coleman's farm in March 1931. Mr Poor had two daughters aged 18 and 15 and it was respected, uh, suggested by several people and by Mr Cochran of Plush near Piddentrenthide who knew Wellham at Steepleton. They were quite insistent that Paul had complained about the kennels because Wellham would not have anything to do with one of the Paul's daughters, and accordingly that night there had been some ill feeling between Paul and Wellham. This seems most unlikely, but quite extraordinary that several people mentioned the village gossip as a possible reason for murder.
Hambrook interviewed and took statements from Mr. and Mrs. Poor, and also their two daughters, all of whom were employed on the farm. They impressed Detective Hambrook as being a particularly hard-working and respectable family, and he was convinced that none of them had anything to do with the shooting, and all were at home at least three-quarters of a mile away when the shooting occurred. Hambrook must have wondered if village gossip was being used to hinder the police investigation. In the course of inquiries, it came to Detective Hambrook's notice that Amelia Weeks, with whose mother Steer and Wellham had lodged, and whose sister Elsie was said to have been friendly with Steer, had until recently acted as a postwoman and delivered letters at the kennels. She was said to have been somewhat simple-minded and said to have been very fond of Wellham. She can also be eliminated, however, as at the time of the shooting she was elsewhere, where she was employed as a general servant, and this was corroborated by her employer, Miss Joyce Bailey. However, again, village gossip was spreading rumours. The police also received a letter saying that Fred Demon had shot Ted Wellham. Two months before Ted Wellham was shot, on the 21st of July 1931, Albert Austin Downton, aged 22, an undergardener employed by Colonel Chapman at Tarrant Canestone House, was riding his motorcycle and collided with Wellham, who was driving the Kennels motorcycle, which belonged to Mr Frampton, and Mary Hathaway was in the sidecar. The result was that Wellham was thrown into a hedge and was knocked unconscious. He was away from work for two weeks, suffering con- concussion, from which so far as can be ascertained, he was completely recovered. Both machines were damaged, the claim and counterclaim being dealt with by the respective insurance companies. Downton's claim for £13 had not been met, and it was doubtful it ever will be met now that Wellham was dead. But he, wore, he bore Wellham no ill will. He stated that at the time of the shooting he was employed in the kitchen garden at Tarrant Canestone House and that was cooperated by Francis George Bradford, the head gardener there. Mrs Frampton had some interesting ideas about Tarrant Canestone at that time when Wellham had been shot. Mrs Frampton thought that Arthur John Coleman, the farmer upon whose land the kennels were situated at Coleman's farm, may have been responsible for the shooting. Mrs Frampton said that Mr Coleman was on intimate relations with eight women in the village and as a result his wife Mrs Coleman was made ill over her husband's infidelity. Apparently he was intimate with a Mrs Parsons and Mrs Parsons' maid who had been made pregnant and she had been made to marry a local shepherd, Clothier, Leslie Clothier. Both Hathaway girls had been employed as servants at Manor Farm and both had been sexually abused, according to Mrs Frampton. Miss Martin, who had recently had an illegitimate child, whose upkeep was being paid by Mr G Hardy, a stipplechase jockey, but the suggestion was that Mr Coleman was the father. Nellie Edwards, who had been a servant at Manor Farm and a former dairyman's wife, Mrs Russell, were other people that were supposed to have been having an affair with Arthur Coleman. Mrs Frampton named seven women. I suppose Mrs Coleman would have been the eighth woman that he was supposed to be having intimate relations with. Mrs Frampton said it was common knowledge in the village that Mr Coleman was on intimate terms with Mrs Russell. 
They had been seen several times together at night under the trees at Biddlecombe by Wellham and Mary Hathaway, and this may have been the reason for the quick-tempered Mr Coleman to have killed Wellham. Mrs Frampton said that Wellham viewed Mary Hathaway as a sister, and when he tried to intervene to stop sexual harassment, a quarrel may have resulted with Mr Coleman. Mrs Frampton said Coleman had a violent and impulsive temper. Also, he was un- had an overbearing attitude towards people that worked for him. Coleman at one time had threatened to shoot Mrs Frampton and her son. Mrs Frampton said the women of the village were afraid to walk the streets after dark in case they came across Mr Coleman. Mrs Frampton said Coleman murdered Wellham and Tom Hathaway and Russell knew but were not going to say what they knew. Mr Frampton seemed to support his wife's theory but the police did not believe a word of Mrs Frampton's allegations. Mrs Frampton did not live in the village and police during the course of their inquiries did not come across any similar allegations against Mr Coleman. As Mr Coleman lived quite near the kennels, it was necessary to interview him in any event, and without revealing Mrs Frampton's suspicions, the police soon established that Coleman was a mile or so away at the time of Wellham being shot, a fact verified by several witnesses. The fact that Wellham and Mary Hathaway had been working together at the kennels had also caused some village gossip that had to be investigated. The police concluded that the Hathaways had nothing to gain from Wellham's death, and it had been hoped by Edith Hathaway that her daughter Mary may have married Ted Wellham, who she would have approved of as a son-in-law. The police investigation was certainly thorough. They conducted house-to-house investigations throughout the village, but so far as can be ascertained, no stranger or anyone acting in any way suspiciously was seen anywhere near the kennels. The only people known to have been at the kennels at that morning of the shooting were Wellham and Demon. The police were at a loss to find a motive for the murder of Wellham. He was friendly with everyone, and they with him. There was no suggestion of robbery, but they continued inquiries, uh, and some, some of the inquiries may have qualified the views held by the police. The kennels were not really run on strictly business lines. Mr Frampton, who had other business interests, had regarded them more as a hobby than anything else, and his wife took a great interest he and his wife took a great interest in them. Both thought a lot of Wellham as a manager. He was implicitly trusted. Nothing had transpired to suggest that the trust was in any way misplaced. There were very few records kept, and the majority of the transactions being verbally discussed when the Framptons visited the kennels um, and to speak with Wellham. It was difficult, therefore, to even approximately estimate how much money Wellham should have had. He was a non-smoker, a teetotaler, and does not seem to have spent much money apart from lodging and clothing. Any individual, and particularly anyone hurrying away, would have been easily noticed on the rising ground in the fields adjoining the kennels, and on either side of the River Tarrant, but no person was seen. Detective Hambrook questioned Mary Hathaway about the general atmosphere, what it was like at the kennels before the shooting. Hambrook described Mary as self-possessed and well-informed, an intelligent 16-year-old girl. Hambrook found her capable and someone that could be trusted. Mary remembered that Demon commenced work at the kennels in April 1930, although she was not employed uh, at that time. Ted Wellham had talked about Fred Demon, 
When she started work at the kennels in December 1930, she was first employed to exercise the dogs for an hour a day, for which she was paid five shillings a week. When the kennels were moved in March 1931, she began to feed and shut up the dogs, being employed from 3pm until dusk, and she received ten shillings a week. In this way, she saw a lot of demon and got to know him very well, so far as his work was concerned. There were at first several occasions when Wellham found fault with Mary for leaving doors open and carelessly letting the dogs out. Mary knew that the faults complained of were not hers but demons, and she told Wellham this. She did several jobs which had previously been done by Demon, and this seemed to have made Demon slack, and resulted in Wellham several times saying to her that Demon would have to alter his ways, otherwise he would get the push, meaning lose his job. Mary did not know if Wellham spoke to Demon upon the subject. She thinks it's quite likely that Wellham did not do that because he was not he was the sort of man that kept putting things off. During the time that Wellen was away from work in July 1931, the motorbike accident, Demon commenced work at 7am and finished at 5pm as usual. He did not offer to stay late, even if the work had not been done. During Wellen's absence, Mary Hathaway also commenced work at 7am, but she continued until after dark. The fact that Demon would not stay after 5pm resulted in Mary Hathaway having to do a lot of extra work. Wellham had confided to Mr Frampton that Demon would never make a dog trainer, although he never actually had any complaint against Demon. Mary Hathaway did complain about Demon, especially leaving work before the dogs had been mortared, leaving her to do all the work when Wellham was away. Mary had to fill 20 pails of water from the river to take to the dogs. When Wellham learned about this, he was very angry at Demon. Wellham told Mary, Never mind, kid. And that's the name that he called her. He won't be any better for him. He won't get anything after I'm well. During the fortnight that Wellen was off work, P.C. Lewis of Dorchester Constabulary called at the kennels and spoke to Demon for a long time, after which the officer took possession of some tools from Demon's tool bag. Later she asked Demon why P.C. Lewis had taken the tools, and Demon said he'd found them near Badbury Rings, not far from his home, and he put them in his tool bag. She asked if he had stolen the tools, and Demon said, No, I picked them up and put them in my tool bag. This referred to some tools reported stolen from an unattended motorcycle on the 22nd of July 1931 near Badbury Rings. The police decided that it was possible that Demon may have picked them up, and he was given the benefit of the doubt. He was not summoned for larceny, and the tools were returned to the owner, Mr Jack Green. There were, however, six stolen tools not identified by the loser, and those identified were retained by P.C. Lewis, who thought he may get an inquiry regarding them. Demon told Mary Hathaway what had happened, and she informed Wellham, who said he wondered whether any of the tools belonged to him, and instructed Mary Hathaway to keep locked the door of the shed where the motorcycle and the tools were kept. Detective Hanbrook discovered after the shooting that at least one of the tools, a pair of dog nail clippers were identified as belonging to Mr Frampton. Other tools were similar to those that had gone missing at the kennels, but Dorset police decided not to take action against Demon. Motor oil had also gone missing at the kennels, and it was thought that Demon had stolen it while Wellham had been off work during his motorbike accident. When Wellham returned to work, 
Demon was suspected of other thefts, including bulbs from the lights of Wellham's motorcycle and a wallet containing £11 lost by Wellham that Mary suspected Demon of stealing. The theft of a bulb from a motorcycle caused Wellham to lose his temper, according to Mary Hathaway. Wellham saying, That silly little devil, he does not know when he's well off. He'll have to look out, he's likely to lose his job, and he'll have to find something else. It must have occurred to Wellham that Demon was responsible for the other thefts and losses at the kennels. There remains a suspicion that when Wellham discovered that Demon was to appear at the court at Wimborne, this may have caused a confrontation between Demon and Wellham, when Wellham told Demon of his suspicions that Demon was a thief. Given that Demon had a personality that could be explained as odd, he may have shot Wellham in a temper tantrum at being found out and accused of being a lazy thief. Detective Hambrook received letters regarding the case from Dr Henry Maudsley, a medical officer who said that the facts reminded him of a case of a boy named Harold Jones who murdered two children but was only convicted of the second after being found not guilty of the first in 1921. Part of the reason of being found not guilty was the groundswell of public opinion in his favour in the village where he lived. Harold was aged 15 at the time. He killed the two girls. Jones was released from prison in 1941, but was suspected of other murders, including the Hammersmith nude murders, a series of murders of sex workers between 1964 and 65 in West London. I did uh, do a podcast on this. Harold Jones was thought to be an example of a moral imbecile, a person who was defined as someone who from an early age displays a mental defect coupled with criminal tendencies on whom punishment has no deterrent. The Harold Jones case was well covered and quite recently there was a BBC examination of the case called Dark Sun, which was the reason I did not attempt um, a podcast on that case. Also, Case File, the podcast Case File, produced a, a podcast on the case, and their podcasts are excellent. Can't really be improved upon. Dr. Maudsley gave other examples of one was whom was William Ernest Nell, who was acquitted at Hampshire Assizes for the murder of Madge Cleef. The case was similar in some respects to the Wellham case, and happened just five weeks before Wellham was shot but Kell actually went to trial and was found not guilty, although the police did not look for anyone else afterwards. It was generally thought that Kell was the murderer. I don't know if the investigation into Madge Cleef case was as careful as that carried out by Detective Hambrook, but Morsley thought William Kell was a moral imbecile, someone that he comes across as normal, but has no comprehension of morality. Morsley thought that Fred Demon fitted this character category. Such offenders are clever and do not admit to any wrongdoing and as a result may commit offences for which they are never charged. I'm not sure what happened to Frederick Demon. There was a name born in Dorset in April 1913 that would have been the right age who died in 1986 but I don't know if this was the person who was employed in the kennels at Terrell Kenstone. I did search for him Detective Hambrook, who was the police inspector with Scotland Yard uh, Murder Squad, was in his mid-fifties when he investigated the case. He died in Sutton in Surrey during December 1966, aged 90 years. I can't find any information regarding Mary Hathaway. 
Anyway, thank you for downloading. Thank you for listening. Thank you for Damselfly for providing the background music. Until next time, I will say goodbye. Goodbye.